welcome back to Gin Topic. Welcome back to Gin Topic. If you've forgotten, I'm Sarah. And I'm Anya. And we drink gin. And we don't know anything. (laughs) But it's okay, because we've got a load more experts. We've got some really cool topics, and we're going to find out about them. Yeah, while drinking gin. (sighs) Perfect. (laughs) Hello. Hello. You're right. Yeah. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah. I am ready for gin. I'm so ready for a gin. <laughs> I'm really, really ready for a gin. Yeah. And I'm really, really ready for a gin because I really, really like the bottle, and I think bottle. my glass with um, things in it looks really nice. I got to pour the gin today, which I don't normally get to pour the gin, which means this is a strong gin. Because oh, Sarah yeah. does strong gins, but I do strong gins. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I will taste it, and I will go, oh fuck, which will make a change. <laughs> yeah, we'll make a change. Yeah. But before we get to the gen, yes, this week we are talking to Dr. Emily May Armstrong. Nice, and she is a geneticist with a genetic disease, and I won't be able to say that after your gen. You won't. No. She's specialising in building conversations around disability, plant knowledge and scientific understanding in modern life. So that's three things. That is, but we're not talking about, well, we might be talking about all of them. Okay, cool. But our subject is plants. Right, okay. And our question is, what do they even do for us and how do we make them work for us? Right, now, I don't think it means getting plants to make our gin and tonic. No, I wasn't thinking that. <laughs> I was just thinking about, I guess, just plant mums and people who have a lot of plants and, you know, they're good for, like, your mental health and oxygen and stuff, right? Yeah, and houseplants yeah. have become more trendy again. Very trendy. I love plants. I don't currently have any because I don't, I don't have that big a room at uni. And also, I don't know whether I'd be a very good plant mum. Well, that's the thing. I'm I'm a plant mum because I have an app that tells me what to do and when do. to do it. Yeah, <laughs> but I, but previously, mm-hmm. I have just killed them. Yeah. So without the app, I think it would just be plant murder. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what do they even do for us? Well, there's lots of thoughts about purification of air I have plants Mm -hmm. that I get Mm -hmm. and it has little things on saying they're purifying but I seem to remember seeing something in the news recently that said that that's all rubbish I mean maybe I don't know um what do they even do for us I think mentally they are really nice to look at they are they're very pretty I know that there's some connection with creativity and green yeah probably if I'm honest I haven't got on this whole plant trend I don't really know much about them I know you're quite quiet. Been, you're just I've sort just of like, yeah, whatever. In it. Yeah, I think it, you know what I think it is. It's the trauma of growing up being forced to watch Gardener's Worlds that's done this. <laughs> because having that in my life, I I like rebelled against it and went, that's it. I'm sorry, Monty Don. I'm sure you're a great guy, but you ruined many a night for me because I was just happily trying to watch TV and and Dad came in. He was like. Gardener's World time. And we're not allowed to talk during Gardener's World. You're not even allowed to, like, have a little quiet chat in the background. So I think the trauma of that has put me off plants and gardening. I'm going to be honest. Probably. Well, let's see if Emily May can change your mind. Gardener's World. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. So with plants, Mm -hmm. we are drinking. Do you want to tell us about the gin? I'm excited about it. I can't tell you about it because I don't know anything about it. But it is 
Isle of Harris gin infused with sugar kelp. And I have absolutely no idea what the fuck sugar kelp is, but it's from Scotland and it's in a bottle where I would describe it as either a bottle that you're going to get a potion in Harry Potter or your mum's going to put mouthwash in to look pretty on the side in the bathroom. That's how I I think it's really, really pretty. It's gorgeous. Um, And it's got that gradient. We had a gym before that had that sort of turquoise. It was solace with the turquoise at the bottom. But this one's all ribbed. Um, Lovely little sound effects of the nails down the bottle. Um, And it looks really, really pretty. It It looks like something you would put lights in. Yeah, and it's got a great little um, sort of cork stopper to it, which makes... I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's our porn. Okay, so this is chosen by Emily May, May, and she can tell us more about what it means to her. Um, But I think the reason why it's chosen is because she is um, up in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this is from the Isle of Harris. Right, got you. Um, So it is from right out in the Outer Hebrides. Mm-hmm. Smooth, complex, refreshing spirit capturing the mir- maritime nature of an island home. Lovely. But the weird thing is, is this sugar kelp seaweed? Oh, it's that seaweed. Is got oh, in okay, it. okay. So in the shop, I didn't really think, and I just bought the gin. But mm. now I wish I had bought the sugar kelp aromatic water oh, no, that you can too buy far. to go with it. That's well, too far. Only because it would have been interesting to see it. But as ever, instead we've paired it with Fever Tree Refreshingly Light Tonic Water. And Sarah's been a bit bougie today. Well, only because they recommend it. Uh-huh. We have paired it with grapefruit and okay. a red grapefruit, not a normal grapefruit. Okay. Should we have a try? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did make it quite strong. Oh, yeah. Mm. You really get the gin. Oh, that's nice. It's nice. It's our kind of gin. It is our kind of gin. Long time listeners. It's a ginny gin. <laughs> it's a ginny gin. It is a ginny gin. Yeah. It's straight up gin. It is. I don't get seaweed. I don't get sea kind of That would kind flavors. of put me off a little bit, not gonna lie. And I also love the fact that I could just keep buying from them because... As well as it being a nice gin, and that is a nice bottle, they then do um, what I seem to think. They do different bottles each time. So they've got a a Harris Cayley bottle, which looks really pretty. Looks quite small for the price, though, doesn't it? Well, true. Um, And then they also do cups and things like that. So... Which look really, really pretty. Nice. So that you could spend a lot of money yeah. with them. It's nice gin. It's solid nice, gin. It's nice a very gin. us gin. It's easy drinking, smooth, junipery goodness. Yeah. Mm. And I quite like that we now have some pink grapefruit in our little gin fruit bag. Grapefruit juice at some point. I oh, know. I only bought one. Oh, okay. Now tell us where ha- Isle of Harris. We is this this was just us coming up with this, wasn't it? In terms of something mm. that was up your way, <laughs> yes. And it looks gorgeous, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, I um, I've wanted to get it for ages. People go crazy for the bottles because they turn them into like lamps and stuff. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, and I noticed they did a ceramic one and then I started clicking on links and beginning to go ceramic shopping <laughs> to remember what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've i wanted to try it for ages and I never had the sort of justification. Well, if you've made it, try it. Slancher. Yeah. Mm, that is very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it makes me do. It's like, ah. Oh. I'm, mine's going down rather well. I think it's evaporating. I made that one quite strong as well, I so I'd be careful. I'm worried. You're going to be like... It's really nice. 45%. It just... just move that away a little bit, just mm. for a minute. <laughs> really good. Mm. I've got uh, a rescued peel of a mouldy mandarin in mine. So Nice. <laughs> That's the right way to do it. I was like, oh, I'm going to buy grapefruit. I'm going to buy all this fancy stuff. Uh, and no, I, I picked out some horrible mandarins from the back of the fruit bowl. So the topic is plants and we've been having a chat about them. Mm. And the fact, well, we were chatting about how Anya is scarred for life by being made to watch Gardener's World yeah. in absolute silence. I would love to have week. a good relationship with plants. I love seeing everyone like with their plant mum stuff and like, you know, their rooms full of lovely plants. But father ruined it for me. I haven't had plants in the house for years because I tended to kill them. I had one plant that I kept for like George. 20 odd years. George. Yeah. But he got so big, he, he would attack huge. you whenever you walked uh, past. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then um, we accidentally sent him to the graveyard. Um, in oh, that, George. Yeah, we thought he needed to go and live with the outdoor plants. Yes. Um, and it's only been recently that I got plants for Christmas, a little mm-hmm. subscription to try and start to repopulate my house. You are the epitome of a plant mum. Like every vibe you have says plant mum. But I get an app that helps me because otherwise I'd kill them. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, mine look fine from a distance. Um, mm-hmm. But close up, I can tell you why they're dying, but it doesn't like, you know, <laughs> stop them from dying. Yeah. But in terms of our knowledge of plants... Super limited. Super limited. Mm. There's, you know... Little echoes in the background of school plants. Yeah, like a tiny bit. And basically breathing in CO2 and being a bit purifying. I think drawing like the structure of a leaf at one point. Yeah, can't remember that. And in terms of um, mental health and creativity, I know there are lots of connections there, but only things that I've sort of seen in passing and gone oh that's really interesting mm-hmm. um so yeah we have lots of <laughs> gaps we are like Huge a cheese of plant i think nice oh, really holy sarah sarah painful and cheesy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah mr trick there so where do we start oh well where don't we start um so i to give a bit of introduction about who I am and what I do, I am a plant geneticist and I currently work as a postdoc at the University of Glasgow. And I wrote up my entire PhD thesis in the middle of a pandemic uh, with living alone with nothing but some plants and a fish tank full of plants for company. So wow. whilst I was already very much so pro-plant, 
mm-hmm. I became even more pro-plant as I was forced to write a 56,000 word document <laughs> about uh, very specific parts of a very specific plant. Mm-hmm. So there's almost so it's such a broad scope. I don't even know where to begin because they do everything for us. So one of the things I like to get people to think about is what did you have to eat today? I can tell you exactly what I've had to eat today. Do you want the full breakdown? Oh yeah, I want the full breakdown. Okay, so this morning I started off with three pieces of ever so slightly, slightly burnt Marmite and butter toast. Sourdough toast. Sourdough toast, because I'm at home, so somebody else is paying for it. Um, <laughs> it's the truth. And then for lunch, we had a brilliant, but by no means nutritious lunch. I know, oh but it was so, <laughs> so good. We had a whole stick of French bread from the bakery. We didn't eat the whole stick. Well, I would have eaten almost. Almost. almost with this cheese that this is how middle class we are. So I do apologize. There is a cheese shop in our local village and he does this seasonal cheese, which is a really sort of soft, gooey um, with wild garlic Ooh, all through the middle of it, which is why, and it's seasonal. It's only it's produced gorgeous. during the wild garlic and season. And big garlic and cheese fans. Oh it was basically God, sold to us within so a heartbeat. Good. I mean, garlic bread is the best food in the world, which is essentially what we had for lunch. And so we had half of it each as a little yeah. treat. Yeah, with loads of bread, just spread on. It was really good. But that's what I've had to eat today. Excellent. So um, you've got quite a diverse range of plants. Actually, well, if you have... Mm. So you've had wheat. Wheat's a plant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of wheat today, huge amounts. <laughs> um, and you've also uh, you've you've worked in quite a few. Uh, you've had some fermented wheat yeah. flour in yeah. your With, sourdough, and the marmite, and the marmite. Oh, that's and the marmite. Marmite isn't made from plants; it's made from yeast. It's yeast, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's a fungus. So fungus <laughs> is actually in a completely different kingdom to plants and people. So I can't argue that Marmite's one of my five a day because it doesn't even come from plants. <laughs> Damn Probably it. not. I've not had a single one of my five a day today. Terrible. <laughs> no, wild garlic. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I would count that. Okay, good. And, and grapefruit. Yeah, grapefruit. Suck on a grapefruit. Really need a healthy dinner. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely everything you've eaten, apart from the Marmite, would have come from plants. So... Your cheese that you had would have been produced by a cow or a sheep or a goat. And what do they eat? Lots of plants. Mm-hmm. Um, bread is a plant helped out by yeast. So even if you're eating a lot of meat or, uh, you know, a lot of dairy, eggs, all of that. Well, and the gin with the sugar kelp. The with the sugar kelp. <laughs> when I first went into plant science, a lot of people thought, why would you study plants? And I was like, what? well, do you like eating? I like eating. <laughs> I love eating. Do you like, do, do you like, you know, being able to eat and survive? And they're like, oh yeah, good point. And then <laughs> as I went into my PhD and I met lots of cancer researchers and people mm. trying to cure heart disease and all these very noble human disease curing causes, we would try it. We would always end up having the same argument at the pub, which is like, well, all of that's great, but if there's no plants, everyone's dead anyway. So <laughs> that was my argument. Uh, about why I wanted to study plants and why I think they're so important. 
See, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because as soon as we we were talking at the beginning of what do we know, plants, immediately what came to mind was the vision, the visualisation of houseplants. But actually, as you're saying, you know, we're talking plants in terms of crops, in terms of fruit trees, in terms of all sorts of Love a fruit tree. There's a really good book that I will find the name of and send at some point. It's it's quite a nominatively deterministic name. It's called Wilding and her name is something like Robin Bird or something. Nice. So rewilding is sort of the concept of we've been doing something called monoculturing for a really long time. So basically means we grow one type of crop in one great big field and you have a really limited amount of biodiversity that this can actually sustain so you end up with crappy soil crappy yield your biodiversity are pretty pissed off your 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 mice your bugs your all little cute creatures (laughs) cute little things that you know some of us might be really grossed out by but I think are quite cute uh they've not really got a very diverse or good place to live so you're talking about when you chop down that apple tree well, you might have lost a big habitat for lots of different types of animals that can't live on lawn grasses. So lawns, there's there's a big anti-lawn movement at the moment. I am quite yeah. anti-lawn. Yeah, screw lawns. They do nothing. Fuck them. It serves no purpose but to look green and nice. Lawns are a real problem, much like monoculturing of crops, because you end up with just one thing again and again and again. And we're sort of at a crunch point now where as climate change is going to get worse we're running out of places to grow food we're running out of places to curate and create biodiverse and natural habitats that actually play into the ecosystem as a whole within that specific area Mm -hmm. so lawns are bad because number one (laughs) yes uh, bees (laughs) bees we love bees love bees incredibly important pollinator um and on the subject of bees and monoculturing uh a lot of i think i think we've just maybe i'm pulling this out of my ass we might have just re-okayed uh neonicotinamide um yeah uh, pesticides which basically are used on monocultured crops and that basically gets inside the bees digestive system and kills them basically which means not only are we destroying lots of native habitat for lots of other sort of Mm -hmm. fauna in the wild we're also killing all the pollinators that make it possible so a good antidote to that is to grow wildflower meadows in Mm -hmm. place of lawns um or vegetable patches um love a vegetable patch too that's the only bit of the garden i'm allowed to do yeah (laughs) if you couldn't already tell my father quite the gardener but sarah is in charge of the vegetable patch and we have some damn good vegetables but and in fairness to him we yeah. we have the increasing long grass it's true that's coming up the garden yeah for and in fairness those. he did leave the hill so that we could roll down it when we were kids which i do respect i respect that move <laughs> very important to have a good rolling hill yeah oh, absolutely yeah so yeah lawn's bad Wildflower gardens, good. Wildflower meadows, good. I think it's actually wildflower meadows are one of the most rapidly decreasing types of subhabitat in the UK at the moment, because a lot of basically wildflowers 
grow on unfertilized soil. If it's mm. ever been fertilized, they're not going to be very happy. So you end up with a lot of like, what's it called? Brown something. You have the green belt, brown belt. That's it. Oh, mm-hmm. Land where it was once used. It's just been left to go sort of fallow basically. And that's where wildflower meadows grow and they're mm. the happiest but we're running out of housing so where are we going to put all those houses that's going to be on those brown belt spaces which were previously a bustling wildflower meadow which is a joy for pollinators i'm gonna make a bold claim here and i think that meadows and wildflowers need to be something that instagram girls care about more because they love those fields they love posing in them and if they were raising awareness through their posing in those fields of how important they are i think that could be a real win I, I agree. But the, the flip side is I think somewhere in California or maybe New Zealand, there are fields of lupins or lupines. I think that's oh. what they're called, which are very closely related to foxgloves. So they have that really yeah, kind of characteristic, yeah. beautiful flared shape. And too many Instagram influencers were going to the habitat, taking oh. pictures and trashing yeah. it. Yeah. So no. they tried and all it did instead of make people care was make more people want to take pictures there. And that's the problem with things like the bluebells in bluebell woods and everything, because they're so delicate. The minute you go trampling in them, they won't come back again. Exactly. And you can you see similar things if you're into mushroom foraging in old woodland, for example. <laughs> I would love to do mushroom foraging, but it's terrifying. Every single year. Yeah. Every year without fail, Sarah says, normally around Christmas time, oh, I want a book on foraging. You know? I want to go and become a forager. So mushrooms are actually i know we're talking about plants but they're they're not actually close enough at all but we'll we'll stick on the mushroom we'll stick on the mushroom track for now Mm. we're like plants and mushrooms are as closely related as us and plants so close-ish but yeah if you overpick them none of them will grow back like you say because Mm. actually mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of something called mycelia which is a really richly densely interconnected sort of network much like you imagine your neural network all living on the side all of the earth soil in woods in gardens everywhere and you know I think I recently read this well I say I think I did recently read a book by um his name is Merlin Sheldrake oh wow he is a mushroom man he basically is the biggest proponent of how mushrooms connect plants so the plants can talk to each other faster well i heard the world the wood wide web exactly there's actually a a chapter in here called exactly that and basically it's like the world wide web but it's all the plant networks i'm listening to you but my brain has just gone to gavin and stacy and that scene with Brain at the computer with Gavin and how he remembers World Wide Web and he's like talking about it and Gavin's like what about World Wide Web and he's like well that's very good that's all my brain is now at I'm afraid <laughs> trying to get rid of that anyway it's fine. so back to back to back to plants back. yes so plants talk much like we talk but just very slowly and instead of using verbal cues or like audible cues they use physical they use physical cues like um they communicate through their roots using um electrical impulses which is oftentimes um sort of channeled by these mycelia the mushroom mycelia in larger forests and in the natural world which means that sort of my plant over here could probably talk to my plant over there but very slowly 
that they sort of hijack the naturally occurring mycelia to get their mm. point across a lot faster. I don't really know what they talk about. Plant scientists are still trying to figure it out. A lot of the time they're saying, hey, there's a caterpillar biting me. Ugh. Do you want to up your production of something called salicylic acid, which is if you're a skincare fan. I am. And I know about. Yes. yes. I told you my skincare would come in handy one day. I don't personally use it, but it's very good if you are acne prone, which luckily I have very good genes. Thank you, parents. Basically, salicylic acid. Uh, it makes things really bitter. So if my plant over here is being munched on by a caterpillar, it will make more salicylic acid, which will become something known as a volatile because it can travel through the air. So it's a volatile compound and it will, you know, shuffle along through the air until it finds another plant. The other plant will be like, hey, whoa, there's a load more salicylic acid. Oh, shit. That means that like Fred over there is probably being (laughs) munched on by a caterpillar. Fine. And then they'll start increasing their production of salicylic acid to make themselves more bitter. So by the time that this caterpillar shows up, he'll take one bite and be like, ugh, no thank you. Oh, clever. That is so clever. I remember there was something I heard about um, plants just suddenly producing more fruit and then there being an abundance of animals that that are there that the the birds have learned to know that that's going there's going to be a bigger harvest and they produce more babies in order but it's like it's magic <laughs> it is on the verge of magic i would say purely because whilst i have to be a super objective scientist sometimes i do look at things that like plants are doing and i'm like what how? I I don't understand it. And I sure know that no one else is going to understand it for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. So we're just sat here like, might as well be magic to me, because if I don't know how someone's done something or how the plant's doing something, there we go. Magic. So I actually got a letter. I say I, my molecular biology previously botany department, still known as the botany building, from a very nice gentleman who referred to us as esteemed experts. And oh, it was a that. lovely handwritten letter um, by um, quite an elderly person. And he basically said, uh, during the whole of the pandemic, I've been sat looking at this cherry tree and it produced way more blooms than usual, uh, loads more fruit than usual. And then one day I was sat in my bed and I sat up really quickly and my wife came in and she was like, oh, Jerry or whatever his name is, your tree's fallen over and died. And he was like, oh no, my tree. And he wrote to us, not asking why the tree had produced so much fruit, but if he, he was asking if he had a psychic connection to the tree. Um, oh, bless just you. broke my heart because I mean, probably not, but the tree made loads and loads of fruit because it knew it was going to die. It's going to die. Yeah. So it was like, ah, oh, crap, better reproduce all my genes and put a load of fruit out so that my, my genes might survive for longer. Interestingly enough, whilst tr- plants aren't psychic, as far as I know, um, they uh, do have very similar synaptic proteins that we have as on, in our nerves. They're very, very similar. So where we send electrical impulses through our nerves we reach this protein it produces the neurotransmitter between the two nerve junctions to send a signal to basically say hey i'm happy i'm sad i'm hungry your legs on fire whatever (laughs) 
But these synapse proteins um, in humans, they're actually very, very similar ones in plants, funnily enough, called synaptotagmins. And they work actually pretty similarly, which has led to a big sort of angry discourse between half a load of retired plant scientists who have decided that plants, is this a sign of plant consciousness, right? If we have these synaptotagmin channels... I see a Doctor Who episode here somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I've already thought of one that was related to this. But anyway, moving on. (laughs) I frequently overhear one of the professors having arguments down the phone with people about plants having consciousness or not. Um, And it's quite interesting because... um, It's quite deep. It is, isn't it? Because Mm. you're thinking at what point, if plants can communicate, if plants can avoid stress... Uh, plants can if they have these channels that look exactly like our synapses our synapse proteins and those receptors that are found in our synapses what next step do they want they can move kind of in their own way I mean I've seen that thing of like sunflowers moving to follow the sun yeah absolutely which the time lapse photography really of that cool. is amazing yeah. that is called phototaxis which i can't i can't remember if that's greek or latin i never i don't know the difference but a long time ago <laughs> that kind of uh, a good house plant if you want to watch them is a genus called a calathea or calathea depending on if you're in the states or europe so <laughs> calatheas are also called prayer plants because in the day they kind of go whoop then they stick their leaves all the way out and in the night they huddle themselves in real tight because that means when they huddle themselves in they're more likely to get more water if it rains on them in the rainforest because they've they've taken all their leaves in so it's not going to bounce off it's going to go right to their roots see that's what i also love i love about wood anemones and we have tons because i nemo but wood anemones and the flowers come out with the sun and then they close back up at night so is and this, it's just like that sort of morning and then go away is again. this where the notion of talking to your plants comes from because obviously we can talk to them in the sense of we talk to the dogs to get our thoughts out but the notion of talking to your plants to let them grow if you give them encouragement because we've all heard stories of a crazy lady who talks to her plants to make them grow i thought that was just because you're breathing on them with carbon dioxide well maybe i don't know i, I like that theory i'd not thought about that theory before um this reminds me of an episode of mythbusters i watched when i must have been about 13 so <laughs> 15 years ago <laughs> um and the there was like the two the two main guys Jamie and Adam and then they had the three little the team it was like Carrie Grant Imahara who unfortunately died last year it was really sad he was such a cool robotics guy and this guy called Tori and they grew I think it was sunflowers or tomatoes in a greenhouse and they played them they played one set only classical music one set only hip hop. One set only like really angry thrash metal. Yeah. And one set didn't get any sound at all. And I think the plants actually grew best with the thrash metal. Well, as you would. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, that's really interesting because going back to what you were saying about them having a consciousness, of course, that's the same kind of experiments that they've done with cows and playing music to cows. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just some one direction blasting into the cows. <laughs> and so, you know, actually that sort of plays into the whole uh, having that consciousness. I've got visualizations as you're talking about the synapses and I'm imagining this brain, which is our world. And, you know, you're just sort of like 
putting things in the way. The way you talk is confusing me, sausage. I'm sorry. I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> I think um, I get it. Okay, good. I don't. <laughs> Are you saying that my brain is about to be overrun by plants who want to be in charge? Potentially. Oh, I like that idea. There we go. I like that idea. <laughs> There's another doctor here. Okay, but coming back from sci-fi type things, um, and and connecting with flower meadows, one of the things they were doing was running flower meadows along um, motorways. motorways. Yes. To make those connections. Because I think that's where I was going with the houses, was you're then breaking up connections Absolutely. with planting cities and everything. Yeah. That having those super highways, not just for not just for the insects and the animals, but for the plants themselves. For the plants themselves, yeah, and it allows sort of a more natural rewilding in a way because if the if you can get the plants to where they were, they'll probably figure the rest out themselves. So if you can connect up two previously disconnected sort of habitats, say you're interested in wildflower meadows, then if you're able to sort of bridge the gap, then those meadows will probably thrive more as far as I understand. But the way you're describing the world as a brain, that's very much so Gaia theory, which is this guy called James Lovelock, who basically came up with this. Everyone thought he was absolutely crazy in the 70s, basically saying the world is one big giant ecosystem. The world is super functional as a whole. We need to stop looking at it as a sort of one country, one problem thing. And then Sure enough, as we go deeper and deeper into ecology, into genetics of plants, into understanding all of these different habitats, and as we've got sort of satellite systems to be able to track the world's weather better, it is very, it's quite now wildly, wildly, (laughs) widely accepted that that's exactly how the earth functions and how one storm in Australia will make it rain for a week in Scotland or something like that. Um, so I think uh, that's that's another one of my reading recommendations that sort of yes. I think I read it just before I started my master's degree and I was like mind absolutely Whoa. blown how amazing is this there are a lot of trees that completely rely on fire to spread their seeds so some plants that are native to areas of the world where there are a lot of wildfires Obviously not the sort of fires we're seeing now because of climate change, where you've got half of Australia and half of California on fire. But when you have sort of wildfires, sort of, if we think like Native American or Native Indigenous American peoples have controlled burns where they do Mm -hmm. small controlled burns to prevent the wildfires from going out of control. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Native plants to America, for example, have developed a way so that they need the fire to either, I think it's to help germinate the seed. It needs an intense period of heat or to maybe crack the shell that the seed is hidden in or even the winds of the fire to carry it off to a place where it's going to germinate and land and be happy. So whilst I don't think we necessarily have a fire resistant house plant, there are a lot of plants that actively rely on fire and fire ecology to actually germinate and grow um and also to create new habitats as well it's quite interesting for a forest to sort of burn down every 20 years because you end up with a whole new sort of yeah 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 habitat growing and from doing the veg garden of course some seeds need it to go frozen 
they need that freezing. And if you're going to be, uh, if you, do they? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And the, if you buy some seeds, the recommendation is you put them in the freezer and you freeze them before you then germinate them because ah. they need those cold temperatures. And, of course, with, with climate change... I've only learned about growing potatoes because they're the only thing that mattered to me as a half Irish woman. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> um, and, but there's with climate change that a lot of those seeds are just not getting yeah, those course. temperatures yeah. that we're having to man-make the... Yeah. the sort of ecology that they would have grown in to make them grow we do something very very similar in the lab uh it's a process called stratification so you have two very similar processes the one that you just described is vernalization which is the process of seeds being exposed to the cold for a long period of time and that long signal basically tells them like not yet not yet not yet and then when they first sustain the first maybe two maybe like two weeks of warmer temperatures that's enough to tell the protein to release this repressive mechanism which then allows germination um and that's funnily enough something that i'm working on at the moment where i look at how plants respond to time and temperature Mm -hmm. um under stressful conditions but Another process that we use in the lab is very similar, and that's called stratification, where we do a lot of sterile work. So we have to make sure there's nothing nasty growing on our seeds. Mm -hmm. So we give the seeds a little wash in a very dilute bleach solution and then leave them to sit in water in the fridge for like two days in the dark. And that gives it sort of a mini winter. So it's like, oh, it's been dark. Oh, it's it's been cold. Oh, that's fine. And then when you pop them out onto your sterile plates, Maybe two or three days in, they'll be like, oh, it's spring. How lovely and start growing. (laughs) And that's a really useful technique to use in molecular biology because you want all your plants to be exactly the same and to Mm -hmm. start growing at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's a nifty little trick that molecular biologists and plant biologists have stolen from nature to sort of create Mm -hmm. uh, the optimal growing environment for what we need our plants to do. Can we can we go on to the ickle bickle um, genetic side of plants? Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of, I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, you know what? I we thought you said about... ickle bickle for a minute, and I was like, in the night garden, <laughs> I did say ickle bickle <laughs> in the night garden. <laughs> um, so, so we're in the night garden with these plants. <laughs> We've had too much gin already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So genetics, we have got a lot of history of messing with genetics of plants, mm-hmm. either through natural choosing farming or through genetic modification or the rest of it. Yes. Um, should we be modifying? Should we not? And yeah, let's unpack that little bomb. <laughs> Ah uh, yes, this is one of my favorite questions because I like to help. When I when I want to answer this question, I like to sort of settle people in a socioeconomic and political sort of seat Good. as well. Please, yes. We have to take that little like nugget in there because obviously science doesn't happen in a vacuum. We uh, want yeah. it to, but it happens in an intensely political world. Uh full of like serious socioeconomic concerns that we have to take into consideration, especially in plant science, because we spend a lot of our time with like 
real white savior complex like we're gonna go save all the farmers in africa who are mm-hmm. only starving because of what the westernized world has done to their country through colonialism yeah. and imperialism and all of that so that's problem number one i'm gonna i'm gonna stop myself from getting on my soapbox and talking shit about several politicians right now i'm gonna shut that down no that's fine that's fine we'll stick in that for later yeah um, <laughs> I'll give you an extra portion of dinner as a reward. Thank you. (laughs) So um, that's one of the things we have to consider. And what we also have to consider is that nature has been genetically modifying itself for millennia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hundreds of thousands of years. So sweet potatoes are only sweet because a little bacterium grew into it or whatever. I can't remember. I mean, they're delicious. They are delicious. Yeah. And then it pumped up the beta carotene production, which is why they're orange. And it pumped up sort of the complex sugar production. So we ended up with a sweet potato. Mm-hmm. Um, so what people like to argue is that we have, you have genetic modification and selective breeding. Mm-hmm. What some people like to argue is that genetic modification is just quick selective breeding. So selective breeding is taking the sweet apple and the big apple and breeding them together to make a big sweet apple mm-hmm. over years and years. That takes a long time because you have two copies of every gene So you because of your two chromosomes. Uh, so you need to make sure that the two copies of the gene, one is for sweet, one is for big. You've got to make sure that both of those are happening at the same time. And that can take a lot of generations. Mm -hmm. which is an especially long time if you're an apple farmer and your apple trees grow real slow. So what we could do is take the sweet apple and the big apple and then take the gene to make apples really big and just stick it in the sweet apple and be Mm -hmm. like, cool, big sweet apple, done, great. That sounds great on paper. But the problem is when we start bringing in profit and patents Mm. and... Uh, lawsuits against people who may or may not find these seeds accidentally growing and this is where I really struggle as a plant scientist I am doing this because I love plants not because I want to make money but there are a lot of people who have realized that this is a great way to make money mm-hmm. is to select or well, genetically modify a crop uh, an example of this would be BT wheat it's called BT because it mm-hmm. contains a gene that makes flies' guts leaky, so they die. So if they eat the wheat, they die. And flies are an important pollinator, as yeah, yeah. So it's it basically it's got a built-in pesticide. So mm. anything that eats that plant, yeah, dead. Um, and then the majority, as far as I understand, of genetically modified crops are then fed to cows, which when mm-hmm. we then eat. Um, so it's not like we're, di- we're indirectly consuming. Well, I'm not. Which, uh, to be honest, if a mosquito bit me and then died, that would be, a, that would be quite a good consequence of that, <laughs> if, that if that was the, the knock-on effect. You know, I don't exactly. mind that. But it's not going to necessarily be that beneficial, yeah. is it? So the problem is, is a lot of these, I hate the term, it's called quote-unquote a suicide gene or a terminator gene. I hate that terminology. I think it's yeah. crass. Yeah. But... Basically, because we've created a genetically modified organism, you need to make sure that they're not just going to start breeding with whoever the fuck shows up. Basically, yes. it's like, oh, this wheat's going to go get busy with that wheat over there. Mr. B's going to take this pollen and go rub it on this plant over there. And we'll end up overrun 
with genetically modified crops that we can't control. Mm. We don't know what's breeding with what. We don't know what we're accidentally going to create. So they put these terminator genes in to make sure basically that it's sterile. Mm. So you grow it, you harvest it, done. It's not going to fertilize itself. It's not going to self-pollinate. It's not going to set seed in the ground and grow again. I was so close to making a sterile joke and I did. Are you proud of me? I am proud. (laughs) But also noted, another extra spoonful of dinner. I'm just trying to get them all now. (laughs) (laughs) So we end up in this sort of catch-22 where we have to honour nature by admitting and being aware of the fact, right, so we've made this thing... It would never naturally occur in nature because we're taking some a gene from another organism and we're sticking it in a plant to create a pesticide that's created within a plant. Fine. But what we end up with then is profiteering from those seeds. The farmers have to go back every single year and buy those seeds. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time, that's where a lot of people have the issue. It's not the plants themselves. It's mm. the want an exploitation of people who have to use those genetically modified mm-hmm. plants to survive. Yeah. So that's where I like to invite people to take a political seat. It's like, well, do you have a problem with the science? Some people just straight up don't think we should be doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's fair enough. That's fine. If they understand the science and they're like, you know what? Nah, I don't, I don't fuck with that. That's fine. Yeah. But then a lot of people will be like, oh, actually the, the science and the technology is fine. It's the exploitation of farmers, mm, which are completely mm. reliant on these mm, crops absolutely. and these seeds that they have the problem with. So it's frustrating that it takes that much to unpick because yeah. it's one of those good sort of flashpoint arguments. So you pro-GM or anti-GM. It's like, well, I'm neither. Mm-hmm. Well, it's that kind of middle ground thing that is so much of a struggle these days. I yeah. think it is everything's very polar. You know, it's either you're this side or you're this side. You don't get to be a middle ground. And I think when yeah. we're talking about this, you know, in terms of it is, it comes down to the fact that we do need perhaps to be doing this in some cases because we need food. And there is this issue of, you know, <laughs> I love that. Mandarin on my lip. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know it was great timing. It was great timing. You know, we need food. There you go. (laughs) But then there is also the issue of you don't want people whose livelihood this is to be exploited. And it becomes a really... And because of the close, closely, closely form of nature, the plants, etc. That if you are messing with something, you could be messing with the ecosystem, which in turn is going to mean that you need to genetically modify the next thing and the next Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm. And then you're in a complete loop of never ending, sort of killing off things that you don't really know you or want to kill off. And purple carrots were a great thing. Why do we get rid of them? It's all right. We still grow them. Oh, of course we do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole nother political battle. It's a whole nother one. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, so I do genetic modification every single day at work. It is in a controlled environment in a lab. It's something everyone's doing Mm 24-7. Can I just ask why? So, yeah. Why? If we want to understand how plants grow and how they respond to the environment and how they feed us and how they make our medicine and our skincare ingredients, um, we need to understand the very bare bones of what they're doing. Mm. We need to understand why that protein is here instead of over there. Mm -hmm. Why does this protein being here make 
salicylic acid easier to go out of the leaf, for example, mm -hmm. if the caterpillar is still over there munching on thread? Why is this gene here? And once we know where a gene is, we can start to think about what it does. And once mm -hmm. we know what a gene does, we can start to think about okay, so how does this actually feed back into the plant as a whole? And how does this one tiny little gene, so the plant I study has 26,000, how does this drop in the 26,000 gene ocean control this plant? And how does it help this plant grow? And what can we use from this new piece of knowledge to then apply to how we grow crop plants? Yeah. What does this gene tell us about how plants might respond to salt stress so as climate change gets worse we're running out of fresh water we might have to yeah. start using brackish water or slightly salty water to grow our plants mm. what can we learn from this gene about how plants respond to saltier water and that comes back into your question of okay but do we selectively breed it or do we genetically modify it do we screen through loads and loads of different types mm. of these plants to find plants that are naturally more resistant and then mm. prioritize growing those and even if we're not um genetically modifying i was thinking about the brackish water and the fact that we've got more flooding so knowing the plants that are going to be more resistant to that or able to deal with that kind of flooding in that area as well then you know that you can still plant things there that are going to survive we're back to monty don again yeah <sighs> and here we go <laughs> sorry monty but actually that sort of ties into what you were saying earlier about the plants that really need freezing conditions to grow properly because um, obviously as climate change, I say obviously, it might not be obvious at all, and it probably isn't. Um, as climate change is getting worse, we're ending up having these really random warm bits. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. I looked at some daffodils in sort of was it early February and they started like coming up. And I was thinking, yeah. oh, God, no, that's a terrible idea. You know, trying to psychically transmit this. <laughs> go away. Please go, go away. back into the ground. Like the man did with his cherry tree that fell over and died, you know. Oh, bless uh, I know. We're ending up sort of with plants like kale and brassicas. Everyone's, so, well, they're one of my favourite types of vegetable. I don't want to shit talk kale. I don't want to shit talk kale. I kale hate is kale. brilliant. I hate yes. kale. Yeah, I know you I love, love your kale. kale. But I know you love I'm it. not going to bloody grow them because all I do is feed the butterflies. So bollocks to them. I'm not growing it. I'm buying it from somebody else. But broccoli, on the other hand, I could talk about how much I love broccoli for like three hours. Broccoli and tender stem broccoli as well, because there's <laughs> multiple purple mm. sprouting broccoli. And purple sprouting broccoli instead of avocado on toast. Oh, oh, Look, I know, I know you're trying to be good, but I'm basic. I am a basic woman. Therefore, I enjoy an avocado on toast. Yeah. Some interesting news for you about your tender stem broccoli. It was actually made by breeding broccoli with kale. Oh, so it's like a hybrid. And tender stem broccoli sounds so much better than yeah. brocale or whatever Bro other name they'd come up with. Can you imagine me trying to spell brocale? <laughs> I can't even spell broccoli and you want me to spell brocale. <laughs> so whilst we did take a bit of a detour there, that is why I spend my day purifying DNA, looking at genes, trying to work out why what's doing what and why mm -hmm. so it is quite interesting because as soon as I finished my PhD I took a step back and I was like the wider world is so fantastic and beautiful and I want to know all there is about ecosystems and ecology and now I'm back at the sort of ultra micro 
molecular <laughs> biology. It's like you open the curtains and then went, hello world, I'm going back in again. Yeah, just like, oh, no, I, can't, I can't stay away. So you are completely right, though. I do get to get my hands dirty sometimes when I'm actually sort of repotting, you know, growing plants so I can get their seeds. But the majority of time is unfortunately um, gloves and a lab coat and face mask now because we're all still working um but and and as we've always said you know we're doing this podcast with the amount of people that we meet you know that you'll meet one person doing such incredibly detailed research on one area but like the whole plants and the ecosystem you all connect with each other and that all builds to the wider thing absolutely i purposefully haven't touched not purposefully touch too much on my research just because I feel like if you're not ingratiated into the wonderful world of molecular biology it's not especially interesting to hear about because you can't visualize it Mm. it's so difficult to sit down and picture me purifying DNA from a leaf using a kit and a little centrifuge like you get in the fairground but it's tiny Uh, it's really hard to visualize that and I think that speaks volumes to how obfuscated and far removed science and research actually is from the general public because if we want the general public to be happy as taxpayers to fund our research we owe it to them to be able to properly explain what we're doing and why Mm. we're doing it exactly as you say so I think I've mostly spent this recording talking about why we do it rather than what I do because if people are happy and confident that oh yeah that's cool you want to know more about how plants tell the time and how they tell temperature nice yeah that's often all they need to know it's very difficult to care about something you can't visualize or see happening which is why I think molecular biology gets a bit of a bad rap well I can now officially say despite my issues with gardeners world I care I now care. You've done it. I'm, I'm invested. <laughs> and I think we we have to keep topping up with that all the time because like with genetic modification, that we can forget things. And so like broccoli, a tender stem broccoli being brocale, um, you know, we can forget that involvement. And then we're like, oh, no, GM, GM, don't want it. Um, and forget that it's actually just part of every day. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And nature's out there genetically modifying stuff all the time, all the time. by itself. Yeah. And so it should, because it's got to deal with what we're doing. What we're doing. Bullshit we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, as I said at the beginning, sort of I was super, didn't understand ecology, didn't care. And then one day... I was super hungover and I went to a protein biochemistry lecture. It was my first week of lectures in my second year. And I sat down and they started talking and I was like, right, I'm out. I don't care what else I have to do. I'm going to march right down to the module supervisor's office, stinking of whiskey. And I'm going to demand that she changes me to the any other available module. So I do not have to do protein biochemistry. And she looks at me and she says, oh, I mean, you can do plant science. And I was like, all right, fine. Don't care. Uh, give me whatever. She was like, well, your next lecture's in like, you know, two hours. So, all right, off you go. It's in this room. So I sit down. I'm really late because I couldn't find the room. I'm right at the front. And mm-hmm. we have this incredible Geordie lecturer called Tracy Lawson, who I still 
speak to you quite regularly. And she just sits down and she goes, without plants, we'd all be dead. And that was it. I was hooked. <laughs> You're like, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. We'd all be dead. Because I just turned properly yeah. vegetarian as well. So I was riding my like ethical horse and I was like, yes, you know, um, and that's all she had to say. And then from that moment, it just clicked. And I was like, plants are the answer. Can't mm-hmm. cure genetic disease if I can't feed someone. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I've had the best time. Thank you for coming and speaking that's to okay. us. <laughs> it has been brilliant. It has. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Fun. Thank you. Super. Are you drunk? <laughs> no, I'm merry, warm, <laughs> and enjoying yeah. buzzing on having yeah. a buzzy person who yeah. I brilliant. who just talks on a wavelength about yeah. stuff, and we go and we meander. Yeah, and Ideal. it's been fab. It's been absolutely wonderful. What have we learned? Well, considering I knew absolutely. Fuck all about plants. I love the fact that we started this. What do we know about plants? We talk about houseplants. We forget the fact that there's all these other plants. We literally were like, houseplants. Yeah. So I've I've learned there's other types of plants. There are quite a few plants in the world. I've learned that lawns are fucking shit. And that without plants, we'd be dead. Yeah. Obviously. We need plants. We need pollinators for all of those plants. Yeah. Yeah, meadows, yeah. rewilding. Yeah. But they are all connected. Mm-hmm. All those plants are talking to each other mm-hmm. and that we can use that mm-hmm. to understand them, mm-hmm. to work with them, but also to give them a helping hand to deal with the shit that we're putting into this world. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Bloody good gin. Really Really good gin. excellent guest. And learnt a lot. And I can see father strolling around the garden, so I'm going to go out there and tell him his lawn is crap. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode... Listen to more. We've got tons. Got loads. And if you like them, really, really like them, you could always leave us a review because apparently they're quite helpful. You can also subscribe. You can. And then you don't even need to go and find us. We just appear. Every single week. Yeah. We are on Twitter at... Topic Gin. And on Instagram... Topic Gin. (laughs) Join us next week for another gin and another topic.